0: Welcome to a joint podcast from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts, and Simulcast, usually, but not always, from Queensland, Australia. I'm Jenny Rudolph, and this is a podcast with Victoria Brazel about her new concept of translational simulation. Uh, Vic Brazel is an emergency physician at Gold Coast University Hospital, a professor of emergency medicine at Bond University Medical School, and Medical Director of the Gold Coast Simulation Service. Welcome, Vic.
1: Hey Jenny, it's exciting to be here and uh, it is kind of funny being on the other side. I'm looking forward to being interviewed.
0: (laughs) So yeah, as you say, we're doing something a little different uh, for both of us today. Usually you're the podcast lead and interviewer and I've usually been a guest. We're going to flip that around and see how well I do applying some of my debriefing skills in the interview context. Got any words of advice uh, for me, Vic?
1: Just simple things, Jenny. Turn your phone off, put your mouth (laughs) close to the microphone and uh, yeah, look, for my feedback.
0: Okay, will do. To frame up the conversation today, I'd like to say a bit more about Vic's work. From keynote stages at Social Media and Critical Care, CSAM, the uh, European Simulation Society, and elsewhere, Vic, I think your simulcast broadcast, your journal articles, and so on, you've been kind of provoking the simulation and healthcare education community to rethink what we believe about healthcare culture, particularly tribes, healthcare education, how we do simulation, and more. In your new work, you've turned your attention to translational simulation. So my take on this is you kind of developed the idea in response to the simulation community's emphasis, perhaps you might say over-emphasis, on clinical and teamwork skill development. It seems you think the true impact is elsewhere On clinical benchmarks, clinical outcomes, and the patient journey. Is this the same age old exhortation to focus on patient quality and safety? Or is this something different? You know, what do you want from us? Uh, What do you want from yourself in this work?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jenny. I think that's a reasonable synopsis. What do I want? I think the overarching thing is I'd like people to think about why they're doing what they're doing in simulation or indeed more broadly in healthcare education. And then to use that to guide the how, uh, it means that we can capitalize on our expertise as simulation educators maximally by doing the appropriate match. And I think really part of what I wanted out of this was a little bit of a think about the terminology issues and a little bit about, thinking, well, what are we trying to do? Can we demonstrate it? And is there a way that we can use words to help us get more directed about those outcomes?
0: Your article that kind of sparked the idea for this podcast, Translational Simulation, Not Where, But Why, a functional view of in-situ simulation, I think is kind of directing our attention. And it seems that you're interested in the road to transforming healthcare culture. Let's get started then with what is translational simulation? What is it? What in it? One of the things I think about when I first read your article is translational research, translational science, which a lot of us have been tracking in the biomedical sciences for years, moving from bench research to research that could actually help clinical outcomes or populations. What's the relationship between your concept and that?
1: Oh, there's no doubt that I sort of borrowed from the term, albeit I'm sure imperfectly. But I think the thrust behind that is that there are some things that are purely clinical research or purely basic research, and they may not have an immediate applicability, but we do have a whole band that does. And for me... One of the motivators behind this was almost a bit of a deficit model, which was I saw us having arguments that I thought were unhelpful about where we were doing sim or how we were doing sim as a competition, whereas I think most of us realize that this is more about the match between how we're doing things with what we're trying to do. I suppose one of my things was I don't want us to do simulation that's intensive and resource heavy. If it's not having the impact that we want it to have for our patients, for our providers, or whatever it is that we're trying to achieve. I mean, I want to be a little bit careful here. I'm not saying that doing things for purely educational value is the wrong thing to do. I just think we've got to be disciplined about when we're doing whatever it is that we're aiming to do and then matching our modality appropriately rather than being format-driven and thinking, oh, this is good, let's copy it.
0: Right. So it seems that you're somewhat urging us in the simulation-based education community to sidestep, is in-situ simulation better or is center-based simulation better, is event-based education better, is workplace-based education better? We really should be thinking about what are the clinical outcomes we want and how can we put simulation into service for that?
1: Yeah, and I think even a level beyond that, Jenny, it goes to the idea that any format is really only applicable in the context in which it's delivered. I think particularly in these areas where you've got quite nuanced interventions You have to think hard about does it make a difference in this situation and I liken it to the RCT for an intervention and it's a yes-no answer as to which is better versus you think about what we're doing which is of course a social science where we're trying to think well this particular format delivered in this way by these people to these learners in this context may have this kind of outcome. I think actually our job is rather hard with doing this matching, but it's going to be particularly hard if we're only thinking, is this format the right one, rather than really what am I trying to achieve and for whom and when?
0: Vic, before we unpack that a little more, which I think we absolutely should, it might be helpful to have a concrete example.
1: Sure. So take a simple example of trying to, quote-unquote, build teamwork in the emergency department. Ten years ago, we would have a special room or a simulation centre. We'd have a mannequin in there and we'd bring some doctors and nurses from the ED over who could possibly spare their half day. Their attendance might be problematic, but we'd get there and we'd have this day of really good focus on teamwork and that would be useful. We're probably not sure exactly how useful because it was very hard to measure. Then I think step forward to fairly recently. And we've sort of decided that, oh, let's do it actually in our recess bay, because then we'll be able to look at our equipment and people will just be able to come off the floor. And then we'll be able to have our real team together. And we'll be able to talk about the things that matter to us. Of course, we might only get five minutes for the debrief. We might get interrupted. We might compromise the care of real patients, but it's going to be really good. So we ended up having an argument about which of these two things was better, whereas what we can see is that clearly there's strengths and weaknesses. And I suppose my caution is that in the latter example, there are a lot of things that come at a price, whether it's people's time or the risks of doing it in the environment, Price, I think, is worth it if you are really looking at this native team and this is the only way you can get them together and you really are looking at how do the systems work, how does the equipment work within that environment, if that is the focus. But if you really just want to talk about how do you coordinate people around the head of a bed to do an endotracheal intubation, you might find that that is better served away from the clinical environment, not in you, and get that bit right before you then transform it into the more complex environment of the in situ simulation. So again, it's just recognising about what we're trying to achieve and knowing that what we can achieve is probably less in any given situation than we might like to think and that simply doing something embedded in the clinical environment is not a panacea. It offers immense opportunities but there are risks and trade-offs, like with anything.
0: You're sort of helping us see the contrast between a kind of half-day, devoted, dedicated center-based simulation and maybe a in-situ simulation in a bay with a specific procedural or outcome focus. What I've heard you argue, for example, at the CSAM conference this summer or in your recent article in Advances in Simulation, is those also aren't quite cutting it. For us, and you used some fairly spicy critiques like not playtime for registrars and kind of pushing us to try to think more ambitiously. And you used words like diagnostic and interventional in trying to help us see how to move this work forward. So what's after what you just talked about? Sort of return to my initial question, what do you want from us?
1: Man, that comment about the playtime for registrars really pushed you a button, didn't it? Uh.
0: (laughs) Yes, it took me a little while to get over my WTF moment there. I and so many others have spent a lot of time on playtime for uh, residents or training for residents. So it just really sparked me to think, well okay, I I respect her as a thinker. What the heck is she thinking?
1: I thought you'd gotten over it when you gave me my feedback, but anyway.
0: uh, (laughs) No, you're not going to get off the hook that easily.
1: So playtime for the registrars, quote unquote, does have its opportunities. But the example of using a large-scale multi-department simulation is not the place for getting efficient or high-volume training for registrar skills. It may be a place where registrars have immense amount of learning through looking at the way that cross-department interfaces work or don't and for thinking about how we might engage in quality improvement as a cultural norm by seeking out some of those marginal gains. Uh, My throwaway line was really saying there is a place for all of these things, but in this example, this is what we're trying to do. And I think maybe good educators do this already, But I'm trying to raise that to the explicit, as it were.
0: Great. So let me unpack or ask you to unpack a few really important phrases that I thought you just included in what you said. So first, let me just take a step back. Your interest in not where and how, but why, I think is really a potential sea change for a lot of us thinking about simulation design. I think it's very easy for us to focus on educational outcomes that we're trained to focus on or close in clinical skills development that many people are trained to focus on. But I think you're shaking us up in a way by forcing us to really think in almost a design thinking sense of what are the jobs to be done that our clinical institutions and our clinical departments are trying to achieve? And how do we solve serious problems or help people reach really ambitious goals in these settings? And I think most of us, like any subspecialty, get stuck in our narrow parochial focus of whatever our near-in clinical goal is, whether it's laryngoscopy or central venous line or difficult conversation at end of life. And you're saying, okay, guys, no, no, no. All those things need to be in play, but in a real clinical context toward a real clinical goal. And I think that focus is forcing us to rethink the emphasis of what we do in simulation. Could you give us an example of something you think is really working with this translational sim? Before I do that, there's a
1: fair bit in what you just said, design thinking. Oh, my God, I've just got to get that buzzword somewhere related to translational simulation. So thank you. I guess inherent in design thinking is things about being co-created with providers. So it's actually not a bad analogy, and I might come back to that when I talk about the examples. Okay, I'm going to call out my great friend, Andrew Petrosniak, working at St. Michael's over in Toronto, looking at massive transfusion. They used in situ simulation in their trauma patients to investigate how quickly they were getting blood to the patient and to investigate the things that were delays in the process. And they found a number of things just related to how many phone calls had to be made and some of the communication that was happening around getting the blood to the desperately unwell patient. So that I would say is a diagnostic phase of simulation. And the next thing they did was arrange some new processes to try and improve it, also embedded through simulation and other modalities. And they've managed to improve the time that blood gets to those patients in the real patients by two and a half minutes, which is not insignificant in a uh, critically hypotensive trauma patient that's bleeding. So to my mind, that is a classic example of um, translational simulation at work. Uh, This is quality improvement. People have been doing quality improvement for a long time. People from SIM aren't just the first people to have thought about it. So I think we need to be aware that there are some processes that we should adopt that are existing in this field and some that we might be able to add to enhance the capabilities.
0: Last week, I tweeted about and and read some really wonderful work by the California Maternal Mortality Collaborative and how they were using simulation plus debriefing to reduce mortality from postpartum hemorrhage. Again, a situation managing some bleeding. So a third aspect that seems to be really important about this translational sim concept is stretching out what we look at and count as an important outcome. Summarizing, Vic, I'm hearing that for translational simulation to get going and possibly work, we want to have some part of it be diagnostic, allow that to feed into some kind of an interventional approach to improve whatever it is, like, let's say, massive transfusion protocol. And that there's aspects of this that if we work in large collaboratives, we might be able to move to the national policy or institutional level in improving things. And I think the California Maternal Mortality Collaborative is possibly an example of this that used data tracking from California-wide about postpartum hemorrhage and local interventions to reduce it and created a feedback loop between those that might be a model for other similar programs.
1: So as you say, that's a great example. To contrast that, we've just had a big multi-centre study about the PROMPT program for looking at maternal emergencies in the state of Victoria here in Australia, a very nice article that tried to look for outcomes from the introduction of PROMPT, looked at many thousands of real patient outcomes and failed to demonstrate a difference in clinically important outcomes, despite a really good course delivered by really good people with really good content that was Hmm. focused on exactly those kinds of emergencies. Now, we discussed that on Simulcast and we could come up with a whole range of reasons why that may not have been a demonstrated outcome. But you sort of think, well, hang on, they've got this example in California that seemed to go really well. And then they've got this example in Australia that didn't. Are people doing it differently? Are their baseline indicators or outcomes different? Have they used different outcome measures? And I think this is this is really hard to do in our social science dominated world of nuanced interventions. It's not quite as straightforward. I'm not saying it's simple, but I do think it's straightforward if you've got drug A versus drug B for a metric like hypertension that you can measure. This is obviously not quite so straightforward.
0: Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the role of translational simulation in intertribal conflict or intertribal difference. One of the things I've heard you talk about is when you do these complex simulations in situ directed at a particular benchmark or clinical outcome that you've learned from a department they care about, such as time from the door of the emergency department to the cath lab or time from the emergency department to decompression of a subdural hematoma, that that's fantastic. Those clinical quality issues are getting improved, but it seems from what I read in your article that certain relational things are also getting improved and that in your table one, for example, of your article, you talk about improving relationships, improving interfaces, and that that somehow also is going to be really important to patient care and potentially provider satisfaction and resilience. So that surprised me that that was a secondary outcome. Tell us a little more about that.
1: Sure. And I think this goes down to how we as clinicians think about our care and certainly the technical aspects of performance dominate. So those time-based targets are appealing to us as a way to improve what we do. That said, I think you don 't need to think too deeply to realize that healthcare is also this complex socio cultural event. realize i 'm talking to a social scientist here, so i 'm being careful with my terminology but <laughs> uh, and that while the goals are important, the relationships, if we can build the quality of those, tend to help the goals look after themselves a little bit as well. so I think both are important i 'm not shying away from the idea of time based targets and they are easy to measure and demonstrate to our CEOs when we want money for our simulation programs. but I do think For me, this was a gut feel that I hope is turning into something a little bit more rigorous with the arrival of Eve Purdy to come and work with us here at the Gold Coast. And that is that I saw what was happening in our debrief rooms when we would do these interdepartmental simulations as a way of building connections and this was somewhere in between the memo that nobody read that said, you sh- you guys should do this versus the morbidity and mortality meeting where everyone was sitting together, but they were feeling rather bad because there was an adverse patient outcome. And now we were all talking somewhat defensively and not really in a way that was trying to get us to connect. And I thought that our debrief rooms were in between those two things where we'd had an authentic patient care simulated, patient care experience together. And we were talking about how it went and we were thinking about ways we could make it better. Now, just those processes, I think, are enormously positive things to do in a healthcare institution. I guess come down to, well, that all sounds really touchy-feely and nice, Vic, but how can you show that? Well, obviously it's complicated, but as I said, we're about to embark on a a year's program of research involving some sophisticated strategies uh, that we wouldn't normally use in our clinical research, but things like ethnography, uh, models like relational coordination to look at how are the quality of relationships, trust and communication across our trauma service. And have we been able to use in situ simulation to do that and or other processes? And I think One of the things I think would be a shame for simulation in the quality improvement context would be if we somehow saw ourselves as separate or different or better to those other quality improvement initiatives that we need to be integrated with.
0: Linking with other quality initiatives could be a really important part of this pathway. And we talked a little bit about that already. What I want to circle back to, though, is this idea that you might be actually shifting people's clinical identity by getting them involved in this shared patient journey. So you were talking about, in the debrief, having this large group of people, you've mentioned to me before, it's not unusual for you to have 40 or more people in this debrief who have seen GoPro body camera views of each other's work, As the patient moves through the process, I've heard you ruminate that it might be that people shift from thinking about I'm the emergency department physician who does XYZ to my identity is helping this patient with this problem get from here to there with the best possible care. And so we're shifting clinical identity from I'm about my local subspecialty to I'm about something to do with this patient. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Just giving people an insight into how good other people's acts are, I think is actually very functional. And I'm fortunate yeah. to get to go around the hospital and see teams I don't normally work with. And I think when we're under pressure, we don't necessarily see how good our colleagues are. Hopefully, this is one way where you can go just wow, look at that. And uh, that, I think, then helps us all think that we've got a lot to contribute.
0: Vic, I recently visited the Gold Coast Hospital with you in July, and it was kind of a wow experience to see everything that you're doing. And I've spent some time with Peter Weinstock and uh, Catherine Allen and Chris Rusin at Boston Children's Hospital, also a total wow experience. And I think what can happen to people sometimes when they see mature programs like yours or the one at the Boston uh, Children's Hospital Simulator Program is feel kind of intimidated about how will I ever get something like this started? How do they sustain it? How do they do it? And I have heard you talk a bit about what it takes in terms of social capital, in terms of building your relationships, building your credibility, helping people with problems they really have. So let's say somebody wants to do translational simulation, but right now they have a mini micro in-situ program or they have an in-center program. What can you tell them about getting started with this work?
1: Well, I think the first thing I'd say is there's lots and lots of friends now. And so there are people all over the globe doing this and making all the same mistakes that we make all the time, but also having some wins and hopefully reflecting hard on the reasons for both the wins and the mistakes. Ian Summers and the crew down at St. Vincent's working on their stroke simulation is a good example. I've talked about the folks in uh, Toronto who do a lot of this. So the first thing I'd say is you know, talk to others who are doing similar things. The second thing I'd say is I don't think it has to be big. And in fact, I think it's probably easier to say we're going to work on a, for instance, single department interface or a single clinical problem. And it doesn't have to be large scale and trauma. I mean, really, we've picked something for a variety of reasons that were important to us that is resource intensive and difficult. But if you look at many of the other clinical issues we have, I do think small one and 2% gains over time add up to an immense difference. With sufficient discipline of what it is that we're trying to achieve, I think we can start to think of lots of small ways we can achieve it. And simulation may well be one of those ways.
0: I want to challenge the idea of, you know, 1% or 2% gains being adequate for some things that we're doing takes a tremendous amount of effort to get a team together, to get their dedicated time. If you think of the person hours involved in what something like this might be, if you have 10 people there for an hour, that's 10 person hours. I personally, uh, as a hospital (laughs) executive, if I were one, or I run a small simulation center, I care a lot about where people put their time in. I would really want to know that that actual specific 1% was going to make a difference for the tens of hours that I was about to put in to that over time.
1: Now, there are some things that might need a big bomb, as it were, but I think most of our service level problems are not got magic bullets about them and I think consistency and small wins and getting people into the habit of doing it. I think that's one of the other things that we can Mm. do that leverages which is getting people into the habit of providing care, reflecting on it, talking about it and then finding ways to enact it. That's probably as good as anything we're actually focusing on as a specific
0: example. That part of it in terms of getting people in the practice of practicing getting people in the practice of reflecting on their practice, if that leads to incremental gains 1% at a time, I think that is a more compelling or helps me understand your enthusiasm for the 1% approach because there's all these other gains that are going to happen from people learning to practice.
1: I mean, that's really the only way it can work because, you know, we do – an hour and a half of trauma sims once a month. If that's our intervention, the dose is going to be inadequate. Whereas if that leads to something more generic as a habit of people, that's really probably the only way it can achieve anything.
0: Okay. I recently watched a talk of yours at the International Clinical Skills Conference, I think. You wrapped up your talk there, giving a little bit of a sense of why this translational sim concept has really grabbed you. So I somehow feel like there's something here that's really important for you, potentially important for us. What's up with that? Hmm. I think as you
1: work through your clinical career, different things resonate with you about what makes a difference. Clinical skills I was trying to acquire as a registrar and then maybe the leadership skills I was trying to acquire as a consultant and different things at different times. I think as care has become more complex and in many ways more frustrating, and I know those of my vintage and much younger would say frustrating as a word they use about their clinical environment right now. I think somehow we've still got to find ways that we can try and you know achieve mastery and autonomy and all those things that the psychologists tell us are important to us. And I do think if we can give the people who are doing the amazing job they do at the coalface a thought process or a model for how to think about what they do and make sure it's about what they're trying to achieve, not just which department they work in, then I think that is uh, a job well done. And I think it's something that we kind of owe to the people that are doing that hard work at the coalface.
0: Well, thanks, Vic. I really see what you're saying in the sense of the phrase I've sometimes heard you utter, which is this work work can really be done better together. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'm Jenny Rudolph from the Center for Medical Simulation, talking with Victoria Brazel on a joint podcast from the Center for Medical Simulation and Simulcast. Thank you so much, Vic. Excellent,
1: Jenny. It's been a pleasure.